Hey, take your Bibles. We are in 1 John. We've been having a great study, Walking in the Light. And today we come to a, one of my all-time favorite passages ever. And, uh, and it got wrecked. And I'll tell you how it got wrecked. So I started out uh, 40-some years ago with the New American Standard Bible. Anybody remember that one, right? Do that? A couple still read it. And uh, still love that version. And then they went to the NIV, New International Version, and, and 90% of the Christian world shifted to that because it was simply easier reading, and so they did. But they changed a word, and it killed me because this was the word I used with everybody when I was using this passage, and it wasn't there anymore. So I always had to go back and reference, and then people go, why? You know, and it just... But then ESV came out, and they put the word back, and I went, yes, all right, there is justice in this world. So we're going to look at that this morning. We are, um, last week we talked about, remember, abiding. We said that, that our job is to abide. And John, answer uh, to what to do in this evil world filled with antichrist and all the dilemmas and the problems that we face and the pressures we face personally, his answer is to abide. In other words, stay tight with Jesus. Stay close to him. Lean in. Because if you have the Son, you also have the Father. And if you have the Son and the Father, then you have the anointing that goes with that, that comes from the Holy Spirit. And I'm saying that that was... Uh, can't pay for that, right? Not a price tag. There was a verse that we weren't able to cover last week very well. We kind of briefly swooshed by it. And uh, we'll start with that verse this week. The verse is in 1 John 2.29. It says this, if you know that he is righteous, in other words, we're talking about Jesus here. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Remember earlier when we studied the book, John calls Jesus the righteous. We said kind of like King Arthur's court. And we're going to explore this theme of righteousness this morning and what it means to practice it. So will you join me in prayer? Let's seek the Father. Father, we've had a lot of fun already this morning and uh, fun worshiping you, fun celebrating Father's Day. Lord, we thank you for dads and we know that dads need encouragement. We know that dads need steadfastness and we know that dads need to be righteous. Lord, that's also true for moms, but today is Father's Day and so we pray that this message will resonate particularly with the men in our church, that you would make us safe for you, safe for themselves, safe for their wives, and safe for their families. Lord, and we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right. First of all, so we use a lot of words. Uh, often it's called Christianese, and, and we, we sort of know what we mean until somebody asks us to define it, and then we don't know what it means, right? So let's look up righteous. What does righteous mean? mean righteous means to be in good moral standing in regards to the law in other words having no moral flaw right ah thanks for playing right so some of us instantly react that way synonyms uh, having virtue integrity honest no duplicity holiness john's key point here is that jesus is the righteous one and if you know that jesus is righteous in other words there's a big debate uh, in our culture right now, and the argument basically goes like this. The reason our argument is a mess is because God's a mess. 
God is not holy. He is not righteous. He's crooked and a power broker, just like everything we all see down here. And really, we're not the problem. He's the problem. That's an enormous flip in 40 years within our culture. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is righteous. So if you know that Jesus is righteous and holy, then you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Why? Because you become like who you follow. It's that simple. And if you're following your flesh, you'll become like the flesh. If you're following the spirit, you'll become like the spirit. If you follow righteousness, you will be righteous because he is righteous. And the word here, the key word, is practice. This was the one I was telling you about earlier. Practice is the engaging in a systematic, repetitive, and disciplined process to gain proficiency in some skill or endeavor. That's a long drawn out definition for saying if you keep doing it over and over again you'll get good at what you do and the question is what are you practicing so we're going to look at that this morning john is saying that one of the telltale signs of somebody that is born again is this lifestyle this fruit of the spirit they be they instantly begin to practice righteousness i've seen this over and over again Uh, i've had couples come to me and say "We, we need to stop sleeping together well who told you that uh, nobody. So, well, we, we prayed about it. Well, so God told you. Well, I guess so. Well, did you know that was him? No. Well, that's what it sounds like when he talks to you. I've had people come many times and say, man, I've got to quit using this language. Well, who told you that? Uh, mm, I, I, I don't know, right? They are not aware that the Spirit of God is speaking to them But once you point it out to them, they go, oh, I guess that is. Wow, God's actually talking to me. This is good. And so once you're born again, you begin to practice righteousness. John says that practicing righteousness is a result of salvation. It's not the other way around. Right? So this is how we think in our human way. We think, um, I don't, so in other words, I don't practice righteousness so that I can be saved. I'm saved, therefore I practice righteousness. You gotta get the cart before the horse in the right way, right? We become righteous after we're saved because God has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. God pulls us along in this practice of righteousness. And sometimes we cooperate fully and sometimes we drag our feet. And sometimes we say no. And then later to be drawn all the way back around again to be pulled back in to the process again. I practice righteousness because I have been saved. 1 John 3 and 1 says this, see what kind of love the Father has given us. He says, look at what God's done. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. John here is reveling. John is not an automaton or just an author or just a theologian. He's a guy himself who got changed by Jesus. Remember, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. And so John carries uh, this weight of remembering what Jesus had done for him. And he's reflecting on the unbelievable idea that God, through Jesus, has allowed us to become his children. And so we are. Did I make that loud enough? I want to pound it through our skulls. So we are. We are children of God with an eternal future. Right now, we are washed, we are forgiven, 
and our sins are forgotten. The Bible says they're cast as far as the east and from the west. Most of us go, well, not mine, maybe everybody else's. No, yours too. Trust me, if he can cast mine, he can cast yours. I was just telling my testimony in a car this week and thought, boy, I don't like telling these stories anymore. Because I like this Steve. I, I like the Steve with Jesus after 40 years. It's pretty nice. It's absolutely a mind-bending proposition and almost too good to believe. Wow, we are children of God. Right here, right now, this second, this minute, if Jesus came back, we would be okay. Unless you practice sinning this week. First John 3. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And the, and the insinuation there is, i.e. dot underlined, we have no clue what it's going to look like. Okay? Um, I, I tell people all the time, you know, God's given us a lot of stuff that we can know about him, and he's played a lot of cards. But there's also a lot of cards he hasn't played. And, and there's things that we are going to be absolutely jaw-drop stunned, going, wow. I've often said, wouldn't it be great if you could get a big bucket of popcorn and a big soda, because it's okay to drink soda in heaven, and there's no health problems. And, and, and God would say, all right, this is how you saw history. This is what you thought happened, right? Now, let me rewind the tape and show you how it re what really went on. What, we would just be going, what? Right? Some unbelievable coincidences that we would have no clue how history pivoted on a pinpoint. And God just went like that, and it turned. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's the great hope. And everyone who thus hopes in him, what? Purifies himself as he is pure. Now there's, there's three consequences here that John lays out that I think we should look at. The first one is this. The world did not recognize, uh, won't recognize us because it didn't recognize Jesus either. They didn't give Jesus much credit. They don't give us much credit. The world does not think much of the church. Uh, the world thinks the church is a bygone relic for the most part, and yet it is the bride of the living Christ. And just as they didn't see significance in Jesus or his claims, uh, they won't recognize his presence within us either. John says you shouldn't be surprised. Jesus himself exclaimed with astonishment, why are my words not clear to you? He also said, don't be surprised if they hate you, for they hated me first. The second thing is we're going to be transformed. That's just a junior high. No worries. <laughs> we're going to be transformed. What, what that is all about or looks like, like I said, we don't know yet. But when it does, we will be like him. The amazing promise of the resurrection body. The illustration that's used, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15. And he talks about, he uses like, it's like a, you know, a corn or a, a wheat, a grain of wheat or something like that. And if you look at a grain of dried up corn or a grain of dried up wheat, it does not look like much. It is not very impressive. You kind of think, what could this ever turn into? And uh, 
and which is actually a very apt picture of what we look like when we die and are placed in the ground. We're old, we're shriveled up, we're decrepit, there's not much left, and what could ever come out of that? But what comes from that is truly astonishing. Likewise, who we are and what we will be in the kingdom of God will be so astonishing, we will have a hard time grasping it all. It will just be mind-bendingly overwhelming and cool as all get out. Number three, then it says this, because of that kind of hope, don't live for this world, live for that world. Everyone who has this hope and hope purifies themselves so to be ready to meet him and not shrink back at his coming. Remember when you were a kid? When did you shrink back from your parents? It was easy when you knew you had done something wrong. Right? If you had not done anything wrong, you were excited when they showed up or when they came home or whatever. But if you'd done something wrong, you'd shrink back. This is going to be the theme for our morning and the point that we're going to land on. What John's saying is that if you have the hope of eternal life, you will purify yourself so that you will be ready when he returns. Now, purify what? Good question. Let's answer it. What goes through the purifying? When we become believers, when we get born again, when we get eternal life, what goes through the purifying process? I pulled some outward symptoms and some inward ones. First one, outward. One of the first things that changes is our actions. Like I said, people suddenly know, I can't do that anymore. Well, who told you that? Ah, nobody. I just can't do that anymore. All right? There's suddenly a change in action. There's also a change in words. Right? Your language changes. The way, not just the actual words used, but the tone. Uh, one of the big things that God works on in us is anger. Anger in our spirit, anger in our language. And he works to take that out. And then the third thing that changes outwardly is involvements. I don't do the things I used to do because I know that wouldn't be okay with Jesus. Now those are the obvious ones. Those you can clean up pretty quick. I found when I came to Christ, a lot of that stuff cleaned up really fast. And I was like, man, I got this Christian thing down. I'm going to be godly in six months. <laughs> then came the internal stuff. Oops. Right? What changes inwardly? First of all, your thoughts. The way you run your thoughts, the tapes you play, the things you write. A lot of times, it takes a while to realize your family has handed you tapes that you shouldn't play anymore. You got to clean up your thoughts. That's so big with purity, so big. Why don't we do pornography? We don't do pornography because God is pure. We are to be pure men. And that's why we don't do it. Attitudes. Any of you have the Lord correct you on your attitudes? You can't, you can't think that way anymore. You can't think towards that person any way anymore. <clears throat> Attitudes. Any of you ever carry a toot, right? Stomp around, throw a fit. What do we call a fit in a three-year-old? Temper tantrum. Do adults ever throw temper tantrums? Yes, yes, we do. And then the deeper one is motives. Not what you're doing, for example, like this morning, you're here. That's a great thing. But the question is not that you're here. The question is, why are you here? 
and, and Esther hit on your best motives. You're here to worship the Lord and to praise him and to give glory to him. And that is the right reason why we should be here. But that's not always the reason why people come to church. There's lots of reasons you can come to church that have nothing to do with Jesus at all. It could be social. could be, um, you know, you, you don't have any place to go on Sunday morning. You just found the door and walked in and said, oh, hi, group of people. <laughs> right? Right? There, it's the why we're doing. God really goes hard after the why. Why are you, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, son, daughter. Why are you doing it? Doc, gone at your persnickety God, okay? Here's, here's the issue. There's an old saying, uh, and Jesus used to be called this all the time. You don't hear it much anymore. You, you still hear it in the South, uh, but it was a very common phrase. And if something happened, somebody would say, sweet Jesus. Anybody recognize that? Right? Sweet Jesus. Look at the heads going. Yeah, you grew up with that, right? My Lord, sweet Jesus, right? And one of the reasons that they came up with that phrase and talked about it is because exactly that. Jesus is sweet in his personality. He's sweet in his nature. He's humble. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. He's not self-seeking. He's not all those things. He is a sweet person. In other words, there's just something really attractive about him that's that's just you want to be around him and that's the emphasis john draws upon here about what you and i are to practice if jesus is sweet in his spirit we are to become sweet in our spirit you know i've been uh not recently because covid shut all that down but i've been to a lot of hospital beds and i've been to a lot of old folks homes and some people die with a very sweet spirit. I mean, literally, they radiate. You walk in the room, and you're going, oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of greatness. It's a privilege to be there. And others, not so well. They're angry. They have what I call disappointment with life. Life did not give them what they wanted. They banked everything on this life, and it wasn't a pleasure to be there at all. They weren't sweet in their spirit. They grew sour. And this morning, as you're thinking through some big categories, where would you see yourself? Are you growing sweet or are you growing sour? Which way is the needle tipping for you? Well, we've all heard that old saying, practice makes perfect. Uh, actually, practice makes permanent is a better saying. And that is what instantly pops in our mind when we have verses like this. We think, I have to be perfect. As a matter of fact, there are several branches of historical Christianity that actually went down this, this route and said, uh, because we have the Holy Spirit and because we're saved, therefore we can be perfected in sanctification. Um, uh, Wesleyan perfectionism was one group. The Keswick movement, probably you don't know about those, but they were pretty major movements at one time. Uh, and they went after perfection. And the idea behind there is I am so solid with Jesus and I am so sanctified with Jesus and I've practiced so well that I don't sin anymore. Sin no longer has any hold on me in any way, shape, means, or form. And uh, the only person I know that's true of is Jesus. Okay. But this is not what John's going after is perfectionism. And I need to say that to us because a number of us are perfectionists, right? You're closet perfectionists, nobody knows. Okay? But, but you're a perfectionist. 
And you would instantly see this, I have to do this right, and if I can't do this, and then you beat yourself up about how you fail all the time because all you can see is how you fail. John's not talking about that. More of what he's aiming at is what we've shared uh, in this diagram. You've seen this diagram before. It's a, a great diagram. We've talked about when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, the Holy Spirit draws a line. says, don't trespass past this line anymore. Don't worry about the stuff on the top side of the line. We'll get to that. But for right now, just hang with me. Stay on this side. Don't go over there. And if you stay on that side, you become sweet. You become these words on the left side there, assurance and clarity, singleness, heart, holiness. If we dabble back, we end up on the other side of the line. And, and God, being a good God, moves the line back. He wants to take us further. He wants us to cooperate with him. That's why the sins of 10 years ago or five years ago are no longer okay today because he's talked to you about them. He said, okay, that, we're done with that now. We've got to move past that. We've got to get by that. It's about practicing staying on the right side of the line with the Holy Spirit. And when God moves the line forward, you stay in step with the Holy Spirit to move with him. And if you sin and you jump on the wrong side of the line, guess what you get to practice? Repentance. Right? Now, have any of you ever crossed that line? Don't raise your hand. Please don't. Just don't do it. At home, you can. We can't see you. Go ahead. Raise your hand. Unless you're dad, you don't sin. Dads don't sin, right? <laughs> Any of you ever cross that line, right? Mm-hmm. Guess what we get good at re practicing then? Repentance. Any of you learned the process of repentance and you've had to do it over and over and over and you start getting good and quick at it and Lord God, instead of three weeks or three months or six years, it's three minutes, sometimes three seconds. God, that was wrong right there. Bang. I just found myself on the wrong side of the line. I was not cooperating with you the way that I want. Admitting you're wrong, and here's the key. Admitting that God was right. That's a hard thing for us sometimes. Admitting that God's right and getting back on the right side of the line. It's not just admitting, but it's actually cooperating and saying, you know what, I see where the line is. I will get back on the right side of it. That is a process that we learn as well. That's how purification and sanctification works. If you stay on the right side of the line, on the top of the line, that's light. If you stay on the wrong side of the line, that's darkness. Another big theme that John works with. If you read the Gospel of John, light and darkness are everywhere. We, weren't, we learn to walk in the light as he's in the light. Now with this picture in mind, let's look what John lays out for us. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So the practice of sinning is a mindset. It's in here. I sin in here long before I ever sin out here. Right? I have to think about it. I have to weigh it. I have to weigh the consequences of it. In other words, if presented with two viable options, the first option would be following, obeying God, or two... Choosing the opposite of what he wants me to do, right? Those are the two options. I can either obey him or I can choose not to. The practice sinner always takes the against God position. In other words, what they practice is resistance. They practice staying on the opposite of the line and figuring out how to keep God from busting through so that he can get a hold of them. 
even if they know it's wrong, especially if I know it's wrong. This spirit of lawlessness has a name in the Old Testament. It's called iniquity. And the principle that is the foundation for this word is found in Ezekiel 18. You don't have to turn this morning, but if you want to look it up, Ezekiel 18. And simply the whole chapter of Ezekiel 18 says this, the soul who sins will die. God revealing himself to Moses says this, look at Exodus. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. There's that word, forgiving uh, that word, forgiving iniquity and the transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. We all get scared about that. A lot of us, you know, we know that we're going to reap what we sow uh, we don't want to pass on our kids, so we pray for crop failure, right? We sow some sin, then we hope it doesn't manifest. Look at Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Amen today. Right now today, God's hand is no shorter, no weaker, no less powerful than it's ever been. He can save anybody he wants today. This moment. But your iniquities, what keeps that from happening? Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. I'm sure our culture would love those verses. Look at Psalm 32.5. Here's repentance in action. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Are you getting the idea that iniquity here is a big deal? Right? That this is a word God camps on? That, I just pulled a couple. There's a bunch more. But this word is an important word. And the problem is, we don't know what it means. I've just, several verses going, iniquity, iniquity. Yeah, it must be bad. Right? Sounds like health food, iniquity. Right? Something like that. There's so much more we could go into here, but, but for today, just for what we're talking about, John is making the connection that sin is lawlessness or iniquity. Again, lawlessness is more of a mindset than it is an action. If we say, what is sin or lawlessness? There's two levels. Level one is what we would call the symptom level. That is when we see people crossing that line that they're transgressing or trespassing. They're going where they're not supposed to go. So somebody's cheating, somebody's lying, somebody's stealing, somebody's acting bad. We, we say, oh, they're sinning. Okay? Now, on a level, that is true because we're seeing the output or the natural byproduct of the sin. In other words, it's the carrying out part. But level two, underneath that level, is the virus side, the iniquity side. If you came here today and you had a cold or the flu, how would I know? course, we don't do that anymore because of COVID. If you're home, all those at home have a cold or flu. How do we know, right? Well, you have symptoms, right? Your eyes are all bulged out and red and puffy and you know, you're all stuffed on clunk, 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 really clunk, right? And, and, you know, and we go, oh, you have a cold or flu. Get away from me. You have COVID. Go away. 
right? Now, is that the cold or the flu? No, that's the symptoms of the cold or the flu. What's the actual cold or flu? It's a little microscopic bug, right? Can we see that little microscopic bug? No, unless you have a special instrument like a microscope. Lasco next door makes world-class microscopes for junior high and high school and college and industrial use. And if you take, if we went over there, snitched one of those, grabbed their microscope, went, right? Right? And then we saw those bugs. Would it make any sense to get ticked off at that microscope and go, you stupid microscope, you know, chuck that sucker through a window? No, what did we just do? We just got rid of the only thing that told us what's actually wrong. Okay? This, my friends, is a spiritual microscope. This does not create what was wrong. This just tells you what is wrong. It gives you the eyes to see what's wrong through God's eyes. It's a microscope. It doesn't create it. Okay, so this iniquity, let's define iniquity. Here's the modern definition. Put it in English. It'll make a lot of sense. Even if you're at home, this will make a lot of sense. Iniquity is simply this. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I don't care who tells me I can't. I don't care if my parents tell me I can't. I don't care if my wife tells me I can't. I don't care if my husband tells me I can't. I don't care if my parents tell me I can't. I don't care if my boss tells me I can't. I don't care if my pastor tells me. I don't care if God himself tells me I can't. I'm doing it anyways. That is the spirit of iniquity. So when you read through the Old Testament, as you're reading through the Bible uh, this year, and as you're going in past the Old Testament, uh, note the passages where God calls Israel, you stubborn and stiff-necked people. Why? Because they were full of iniquity. They would never cooperate with the Lord. And that's what he got upset with. John now superimposes the person of Jesus over on top of this image of iniquity. Look at verses 4 and 5. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Does that make sense now when we've got iniquity placed in there? You know that he appeared, and why did he appear? He appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Key major point about Jesus. There is no sin, there is no iniquity in Jesus. Jesus said, I have come to show the world that I do exactly as my Father has asked. There's no stubbornness or iniquity in Jesus. He's absolutely morally clean. John says in his gospel, in him there is no darkness at all. And that is right now, right here, today, this very second. He is still that pure. He is that righteous. And he is that holy. That's why we are in awe of him, because that is certainly not us. He has come to take away sins, not promote them. Right? He has come to take away sins, not to promote them. So John makes then the next logical progression. Look at verses 6 through 8. No one who abides in him, there's that word again, abide. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, 
For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And our minds go to, I still sin, I'm not saved, I'm of the devil, I'm dead. That's not where John's going with it. John takes us back to this abiding part. The old saying about the Bible echoes this. It's a, the old saying was this, either this book right here will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. If you don't like reading the Bible, if you don't like the Bible, you don't have time to be in the Bible, you don't care about what the Bible says, you could uh, possibly cut precious time out of your busy, busy, God-playing life to spend time in the Bible, that tells you something. Why? You don't know what he says. You don't, know, you don't want to know what he says. Why? Because you want to keep going on in your iniquity. Now, I'm not speaking to us so much as I am our whole culture at this moment. America has kicked this book to the curb. They have kicked it out the window. We don't want it. It's old. It's rigid. It's disgusting. It's corrupt. We don't want anything to do with that. And yet, it is the word of life. Now, why? Why would this book keep you from sin or sin keep you from this book? And simply, it's this easy. Because the book reflects the author. This doesn't stand on its own. This was authored by somebody. Right? And we know who the author is. John, again, is warning his congregation against those who are trying to pull them away from fellowship. Remember, they had people out that had started in their church, pulled out, came out with a different picture of Jesus or the Bible, and then they were trying to pull and recruit others to that new thing. And John is warning those, uh, that for those who are trying to pull them out of fellowship, he's saying to his church, don't be deceived. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Why? Because he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Another old adage that reflects this saying is that uh, you become like the people you hang out with. You ever notice that? You become like the people you hang out with. If you hang out with Jesus, you're going to become like him. If you hang out with the devil, you're going to become like him. And also, we can extrapolate that. If you hang out with sinners, you're going to become like them. Now, I'm not talking about you can't hang out with anybody. We're all sinners, right? I'm talking about those who practice a sinful lifestyle. If you hang out with them, nine times out of ten, if you hang out with sinners on their turf, nine times out of ten, you're going to bend to them. You're going to become like them. They will not bend to you. Have you noticed that? Okay. I remember when I was working in a uh, canning factory, and we had uh, a number of, we had Noel the drug addict and Jeff the street fighter, and we had Bill the cripple, and we had... Uh, Diana, the Indian gal, what an Indian gal was doing in Green Bay, I have no idea, but she was there. And uh, Adam was the manager. And I remember one time I was driving a forklift and I was stacking pallets of peas up. And I was raising the side, trying to get to the fourth level, and I just caught the edge. And that thing tipped over, came down, and it just rained pea juice all over me. I was just cans, right? And I could hear all of them on the line laughing. They were just howling and a bunch of language was coming out of it, you know, that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know what? I had been quiet. I thought, I'm not going to say much because maybe they'll notice I'm a Christian or something. And, um, and it wasn't working. So I got off that 
forklift. I went over to Noel the drug addict. I said, no, you don't like God, do you? Blankety, blankety, blankety. Noel couldn't string three words together without a sore word. Blankety, blankety, blank. No. I said, well, I do. So here's the deal. I'm done with this crap. So every time you swear, I'm going to praise God. Bling, bling, what? Praise the Lord. <laughs> well, that's a bunch of blame. Praise the Lord. And we went at it like this for, I mean, this went on for a couple months. And I mean, and pretty soon it was pretty funny. Noah would swear and then go, praise the Lord. Right? <laughs> he beat me to the punch. You can't have an impact. I guess that's the hope of that. Paul affirms this when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, we can extrapolate this to all kinds of things. You don't have to go anywhere today to be with bad company. All you got to do is turn on your TV set. All you got to do is turn on your computer. All you got to do is look on your phone. The phone is the most insidious one because you can take it with you wherever you are and just look up whatever you want. Remember that old children's hymn, Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Careful little eyes, what you see, right? <clears throat> Who sees? The righteous one, the holy one, is watching. And so John is arguing for practicing righteousness in all the settings of our life. One more. John makes one more valuable insight. Look at verses 6 to 8. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And by the way, if you take that word practice and just think cooperation, it makes a lot of sense. Whoever puts in, for the devil has been seen from the beginning and the Son of God has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, there is an all-out war between God and Satan right now has been all through history, uh, and I'm talking about history before we knew history, and history before there was even the history on this planet. There has been an all-out war between God and Satan. And God is going to destroy the works. In other words, the kingdom, the trappings, the trapping system of the devil. Jesus, and here's the good news, appeared so that he could take away sins. John next makes the statement that he could really... Uh, that could really trip us up. But it's meant as an encouragement. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, initially, you can take that negatively. Well, how come I still sin, and how come if God's seed's within me, I still have all these pulls and all these temptations? We've walked over this many times, but you have two natures within you. If you're born again, you have the old man and the new man. You have the old nature and the new nature. You have the flesh, and you have the spirit. And the battle is for which one will control. And we are learning to let the spirit of God control instead of the old man or the flesh And you could be sitting there going, man, I'm in trouble. I have all these besetting sins that still plague me. Am I even saved? Let's answer that real clearly. There are two ways you can go about trying to eliminate sins. The first way is what I would call, what we talked about earlier, is eliminating symptoms. Uh, remember the cold flu? We talked about that. Um, and you can go after 
all your symptoms. Any of you ever tried to do that? I'm going to figure out every single way that I sin personally, and then I'm going to go, I'm going to peg it one by one. I'm going to nail it. Boom, 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 right? I'm going to go after it. Um, it's a lot like being at a fair and playing whack-a-mole. Have you ever seen that? Okay, right? Whap, 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 whap. And the faster you hit them, the faster they come up kind of thing. And trying to take care of sin on that level is absolutely exhausting because you never hit the end of your sin. As soon as I go after one symptom, another one pops up. And again, it's exhausting. The same is true with sin. Chasing symptoms is exhausting. They seem to take on a life and an energy of their own. If my sin is dead, how come it's so dadgum alive? Right? Seems awfully alive to me. Have you ever taken care of the... Uh, have you ever had a cold or flu, right? Got taken care of it, ran back outside in Seattle rain and got sick worse? Right? What did you take care of? You took care of the symptoms. You didn't take care of the virus. The second strategy is to go after the virus. If I get rid of the virus, amazing thing happens. All the symptoms go away. How do I get rid of the virus? So I believe there's two vital pieces to this equation. Number one, piece number one, it has to be understood that this is an authority issue. Okay? There is a kingdom of God, and if I don't cooperate with the kingdom of God, I have an authority issue. What's on the table is the question, who is the boss? And it has to be seen as a surrender issue. <clears throat> Jesus is not really asking for your acceptance. He's not in heaven just going... Uh, let me pick on a friend, Tyler, I'm going to pick on you, okay? Oh, this is God talking. I just need a friend, and if Tyler would just pray to me, and if he just talk, I'm so lonely up here in heaven, nothing's going right, nobody wants to be around me, and oh my gosh, Tyler hasn't talked to me for three weeks, and if he just accept me, it would be so cool. That is not what's going on, all right? God is the reigning king of the universe saying, I'm looking for any who will love me in spirit and truth. And I'm looking for anybody who recognizes I'm the boss and that the only way this universe runs right is the way I've designed it. And who believes in that will put their faith in me and will surrender. Okay? I'm looking at Ben. Ben's in the military. Ben, do they care once you signed on the line? They care about your feelings? They don't. <laughs> ben, I'm sad for you. Gosh. Don't they come up, Ben, how could we help you, buddy? Right? No? <laughs> right? They, no, they don't. They don't ask questions like that. When you sign on the line, you're in the military. Okay? God, that's an authority issue. In the same way, by the way, absolutely hilarious, being a youth pastor for 18 and a half years, absolutely stunning how kids who have an authority problem reject and rebel against their parents and then join the military. Talk about, you know, from the frying pan into the fire. Wow, that made a lot of sense. <clears throat> it's a surrender. What am I, who am I surrendering my heart to? Have I settled the issue of which kingdom I belong to, gods or Satan? In other words, if I know who my boss is, I'm far more likely to cooperate if I'm in a surrendered position. If I'm surrendered to sin, I'm going to do that. If I'm surrendered to the kingdom of God, I'm going to do that. Both will require, and here's the point, 
both will require something from me. The kingdom of Satan is not free. It will require something from me. Like Bob Dylan saying, you've got to serve somebody. Which one am I willing to follow? And the second one is this. It also, it's not just an authority issue. It also has to be understood as a love issue. I can continue to play whack-a-mole with all my sin symptoms, or I can fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. You know, and a funny thing when you do that, when you fall in love with Jesus, all that other stuff just starts peeling off. It starts going away. Sweet Jesus is truly that. He is sweet in his spirit. He is a delight to hang with. He is a joy to hang around and is a joy to be in his presence. If I focus on him, it is amazing how all the other pulls fall away. So why do you think there's so much warfare with a quiet time? You ever sat down with a quiet time, phone rings? It's amazing you sit down and have a quiet time and you hear all, every bird in the neighborhood chirping. You sit down and suddenly, right, your phone starts going, like nobody ever calls me, what's going on, right? Why do you think there's so much interference with you trying to have a quiet time. Satan does not want you to know how delightful Jesus is. Nor does he want you to be close. He will do whatever it takes to, to disrupt that. But it's amazing, if I can focus on him, how all the other poles fall away. Remember the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'll tell you what, that may be an old hymn, but it's a true hymn. And it's as true today as it was back then. Who is the focus of my affections? Jesus or the world? Which one gets my allegiance? Which one gets my time? Which one gets my energy? You know, you spend time with the people you love. Right? Ben, I'm going to pick on you again. Ben came home, surprised his sister for graduation very good job by the way awesome but when ben came home he didn't come and hang at our house he didn't come and hang at your house who did he hang with who's he sitting with this morning his family why because he loves them right you hang out with people you love and that's the same thing that's going on here we spend time with the people of it's a love relationship not a religious system I don't have a quiet time because it's the thing that I have to do. I have a quiet time because it's worth spending time with Jesus. It's worth getting to know him. I don't pray because I'm religious. I pray because I want to connect with Jesus. I don't go to church because I have to. I go to church because I want to be around the people who love Jesus also, and I want their influence in my life. You become like who you hang out with. John reminds them, remember what you've learned from the beginning, and then he wraps it up with this. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're going to look at that little piece right there big time next week. But John's saying you'll know, you'll be known by what you practice. If you practice righteousness... This means cooperating with God's grace through his Holy Spirit to become like him. It will become evident. And if you don't practice righteousness, the telltale indicator is going to be this little phrase, not loving your brother. 
This refers to all people, but especially your Christian brothers and sisters. And then that's going to become evident as well. John's going to have a lot more. As I said, we're going to go into this next week. He's going to have a lot more to say about this in his epistle. But for this morning, let's leave with the question, what do you find yourself practicing? When you're going through your week at your home where you live in your neighborhood, your job, your, you know, when you wake up in your bedroom and your house, what do you find yourself practicing? Righteousness or unrighteousness? Do you love the kingdom of God or do you love the world? Do you wish you had all the things of the world or is Jesus enough? Do you love Jesus or do you love the people and things that oppose Jesus? You may find yourself repenting this morning, right now, as I'm saying those things. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Repent well. Respond well. Move in, not away. And if you're doing it right, if you are practicing, then abide. Stay tight, stay with them, stay close. Let's be a people who love Jesus so deeply that it will be obvious to others. And let's be a people who love Jesus so deeply we won't have to shrink back at his coming. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, some pretty clear illustrations that really reflect your heart, reflect your kingdom, reflect Jesus, what you said so many times over in many different ways. Do you love me? Peter had blown it. Peter had chosen fear in the world and had rejected you and you looked him in the eyes and said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter looked at you and said, you, Lord, you know. Lord, we're the same way this morning. If you came this morning and said, do you love me? We would have to look at you and say, Lord, you know. Lord, we pray that you would help us with this iniquity issue, that you would help us with this, this knee-jerk bent in us to kick back, to resist you, to resist your input. Lord, we'd find ourselves surrendering and we'd find ourselves yielding to your leadership, trusting your leadership. Lord, we seek you for that. We ask for your favor in that. Lord, we pray that we would be a group of people that abide with you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.